Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 61, and this week we're going to talk all about uh, solar, maybe talk a bit about podcasting, who knows. Uh, and uh, to introduce our guest is my uh, my co-host and uh, um, partner in crime, I guess, Lisa Katz. <laughs> Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Matt. How you doing today, Matt? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, our listeners can't, uh, can't see it, but uh, we're halfway through uh, November or Movember in my case. Um, those of you on the screen probably can't see it either just because uh, of my blonde roots, but I am trying to uh, <laughs> to grow a mustache and, and support the uh, the elimination of men's cancers and, and, and other things that cause men to die too young. So a um, little plug for that. Anybody who's listening to this, find, find somebody to support. Uh, it is a great cause, the Movember cause. But uh, and, and this is the first time, by the way, Matt, that I have seen you in my five years of being with CEM with a mustache. But it it does look good for the people that can't see it. It looks good. Well, uh, so without being, further, oh, sorry, without you're further, be, you're being too kind. Um, <laughs> but let's move on. Let's move on. All right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our our special guest today, who we actually just got off of a podcast with as well. Uh, and hopefully, I'm going to pronounce your name here right. I think it is uh, Tim. Montague. Let me check on that first. Is it Montague? Yes, that's right. Okay, good. And he is the Director of Business Development with Fossler Solar, which is a Babcock, Babcock and Wilcox company. And he's also the host and creator of the Clean Powerhouse. Clean Power, Clean Power Hour. Hour. Clean Power Hour. My apologies. My apologies. It's I wrote that good. down. It's all good. It's great to see you guys again. Awesome. Let's let's dive right in, uh, Tim. We we sometimes we have a bit of a a script or a prep a kind of line of questioning, but uh, since we're all experienced uh, podcasters, um, and since Lisa's been traveling and she's the one that's always prepared, uh, we're going to just jump right in. So, Tim, why don't you? I often ask people to to pretend they were a comic book character and and tell us your origin story. Uh, how did you know? How did you kind of come through your career to be? Uh, with uh, Fossler Solar, a Babcock and Wilcox co company, uh, and and get into podcasting. Just give us a an update on who you are, and then who knows where we'll go from there. Well, my solar career started when I was 10 years old. My father and I were doing backyard solar thermal in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was a professor of environmental studies at University of New Mexico, and he was a techie and a DIYer. And of course, PV wasn't on the scene then because it was too expensive. Uh, solar PV, you know, that technology as we know it today was invented in 1954 at Bell Labs in New Jersey. And, but it wasn't until 2010 that it really took off. And that was because of the cost adoption curve. Solar has been around for 70 years, but it was used only in satellites and remote telecommunications because it was expensive. Now it's going mainstream, right? And so I was uh, cold called actually by a Canadian in 2016. He said, hey, Tim, we've reached grid parity with solar PV. You should look at this. And I thought I'd work in the wind industry before I worked in PV, because here in the Midwest, of course, we've had massive tranches of, of uh, wind power come in. We got our first renewable portfolio standard here in Illinois, where I live in 08, and that drove a tranche of, of major wind farms and and now it's driving a, a significant adoption of solar PV, and it's a both end. Solar, wind, and battery storage are the fastest uh, growing sources of new energy on the grid globally, and it's all about economics. I'd like to say, I'd like to think it's about sustainability, but it's really not. It's, it's more about economics, and, um, and so now I'm sitting on top of a rocket ship um, and, uh, you know, being in, in solar construction now for the last five years, with uh, Illinois booming, but it's a boom and a bust, and now we're booming again, uh, thank God. <laughs> and, um, but no, Fossler is doing uh, community solar, commercial industrial, but now growing into the utility solar space as well, pursuing uh, you know 10 to 500 megawatt projects nationally. So that's that's why I came over to the Fossler team because they're really thinking big, and and now with the Babcock and Wilcox company uh, at our side, so to speak, we have real chops and, and global reach. Tim, can you, can you tell, talk to us a little bit about the evolution of, of, you know, Fossil Solar? Like it, it's obviously a Babcock and Wilcox company, as you stated, which of course is in boilers. How, how new is Fossler? Can you talk to us a little bit about when that originated and why? 
Absolutely, yeah. Fossler, uh, formerly Fossler Construction, is a small general contractor based in Freeport, Illinois. Freeport is a town of 25,000 people in far northern Illinois, just west of Rockford, near the Wisconsin border. And so they were building small commercial buildings until 2017. They got into solar. We had our first major wave of, of uh, CNI residential and uh, utility solar happen in 2018 to 2020. And he saw the writing on the wall and decided to pivot. And now Fossler does nothing but solar PV. And, and so, uh, you know, it is truly a rocket ship. It's a, it's a massive economic opportunity. I mean, here in the US, we did 20 gigawatts in 2020. And we're, wow. we're, we're headed towards 30 gigawatts a year of new solar installations. And then it's gonna scale to uh, 40 plus gigawatts by 2050, you know? So we're, we're really stepping on the gas and, and this is a global phenomenon. It's, it, you know, the Chinese are going hard after it. The Europeans are going hard after it. The Australians, uh, the Australians and the Germans are ahead of us. And, and, you know, it's very strange because solar costs about one third what it does in the US when you go to Australia, they've really solved the soft cost problem of making uh, permitting very easy. Mm. And uh, so we have, you know, it's, it's, it's so weird that the US was a leader technologically, but then we kind of dropped the ball and other countries grabbed onto solar faster, the Japanese, the Germans, and now the Chinese. And then also on the manufacturing side, we do see some reshoring of manufacturing happening now. Um, and, and, and that's fueled by a variety of things, including the supply chain issues that you see going on right now. Here, here we are in the fall of 2021 and, and the entire economy is kind of gummed up with supply chain issues. So like solar panel manufacturing is, is a growing industry here in the United States. And sometimes that's just like panel assembly, but sometimes it's soup to nuts. So uh, it's, a, it's a very fast growing industry and there's just a lot of opportunity there. And, and you mentioned 20 gigawatts in 2020 in the US. Is Fossler Solar right across North America or global? Or, 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 and then what do you focus on personally from a geographic perspective? Yeah, Fossler is building projects in Illinois, New York, Maryland, Virginia. Uh, th those are just, you know, some of the some of the good solar markets, so to speak. Massachusetts, Maine, Texas, Arizona are places where we are uh, chasing projects right now, and we also are working on some projects in Nevada, I believe. So, truly, anywhere there's a good solar market. And even if there's not a good rooftop solar market, there could be a good utility solar market. You know, the foundation generally in the U.S. for good markets is a renewable portfolio standard and then net metering, which allows, you know, residential and commercial customers to uh, realize the value of solar. If you don't have net metering right, then it can be very expensive to uh, to install a power plant on your roof. But uh, so Fossler will continue to uh, to work on, say, portfolios of of CNI, you know, commercial industrial. If it's a portfolio of 10 megawatts, and then and then these utility scale projects, which are getting very very big, you know, in Indiana right now, there's a 1.3 gig, uh, sorry, yeah, 1.3 gigawatt project being built. That's a 13,000 acre solar farm. It's the largest <laughs> solar farm in in the United States, wow. and probably North America, but uh, and so that's one of the, you know, one of the cool things about solar, though, is and, and being in the Midwest is we have lots of land. I mean, just gobs and gobs and gobs of land. And we don't need much. We only need one to two percent of the land area to completely green the grid with solar and batteries. Mm. Batteries, you know, batteries require much less uh, ge geography like Elon Musk is famous for saying, you know, you could take a battery one square mile a mile by mile, and that would be enough battery for the entire grid. And then solar is is 100 miles on a side. So 10,000 square miles of solar, which is just like a corner of Texas or New Mexico. You know, it's and, and it's great for rural communities because it provides farmers steady income. Mm. Uh, cash cropping is, is a good business, but it's also very volatile. 
you know, every year is different. Commodity prices ebb and flow, the weather ebbs and flows. And so it's actually riskier to be a crop farmer than it is to be a solar farmer. And, you know, the only bummer about it is that only a small percentage of the farmers are going to benefit. And, but they, they generally, uh, once they understand that it's not going to hurt the land, it's, it's, uh, it's good for the economics of the local communities and provides a lot of tax base for schools and local government. Hmm. So you, you talked a bit about the, the, the foundations or the, the economic drivers uh, and the net metering piece um, and then the renewable portfolio standards. How does, like, is that what's driving, is the RPS what's driving the, the bigger projects? And then how does, like, how does that get contracted? Is it a contract with the state? Is it uh, a contract with the ISO? Or how, to walk us through how those bigger projects, uh, you know, mechanically come together from a commercial perspective. Sure. Yeah, so the renewable portfolio standard really is the tool du jour, so to speak, here in, in the United States. And so in Illinois, we started with a 25% by 2025 RPS back in 08, but our RPS was broken, right? We were not achieving 25% by 2025. We got a new bill called FEJA, the Future Energy Jobs Act in 2017, which basically captures a small fee on all of ratepayers' bills. So if you're a, a resident or a, a facility owner, you'll see on your power bill, and this is in the IOU territory. So in ComEd, which is in PJM, or in Amrin in MISO. So there's a, there's a one to 2% fee on your bill. That money is collected by the utility. The, the state never touches the money. The utilities are, are building up these war chests and then you apply into what's called the adjustable block program. We have an agency called the Illinois Power Agency, which oversees all of the renewables programs. And, and then yes, you, 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 you get a project to a certain stage of development. Uh, you have what, what's called non-ministerial permits, which is really trivial for rooftop solar. For ground mount, you need what's called a special use permit or a CUP. Those two uh, acronyms are used in the solar industry, a conditional use permit or a special use permit. And then you do some pre-engineering, some very early stage design work, and then you apply into the program. And then if there's RECs available, you know, one REC is one megawatt hour of electricity. And so for residential solar, for example, these RECs are worth $70 a megawatt hour. They're very generous. Mm. For commercial industrial, they're, they're half that. Um, but again, it changes the, the payback period basically right from what would have been 15 years prior to having RECs to uh, three to six years for commercial mm. industrial projects. And that's a game changer, right? Because CEOs and CFOs, they want to see a short payback because if they're installing a new line in their factory, doing expansion, doing R&D, they generally want to see ROI within three, four years. They don't want to wait 15 years to be cash positive on investments they're making. And one of the other challenges that we face here in the Midwest is we have very cheap power. I mm. myself as a resident pay four and a half cents per wow. KWH. Wow. And that's a, and that's 100% green power. So my city is part of a municipal aggregation program where the city of Urbana got together with a bunch of other cities and then they do a group buy, right? So they do a long-term power contract with a supplier. We're a deregulated state. So we have 70 suppliers selling KWH into the grid. Um, but that low cost of power, of course, is subsidized, right? By you, by you and I, right? We're paying for that with our health because it's a lot of coal and natural gas power, which is not good for humans, and it's and it's not good for global warming. So we understand that we need to step, you know, step down our carbon footprint. The other unique feature of Illinois, though, is that we have a very robust nuclear industry. We have 40% of our grid power from nuclear power, mm-hmm. and so the 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 forces at play here have done a have done a deal where the the, the bills that are getting passed, I mean, I, I mentioned the, the FIJA bill. We just got a new bill called CJA, which is the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, which increases our RPS to 100% by 2050, but that includes nuclear and it includes significant mm-hmm. subsidies for the nuclear industry because what's going on there is they, there's an aging fleet of nuclear power plants that are hitting 30 plus years in their life cycle. They can keep running it's just that the, the utility, in this case, Exelon, says to uh, the IPA and the other 
the other uh, authorities, they say, look, these plants are non-economical and unless you subsidize them, we're going to shut them down. Mm. And so this, you know, once you have those assets on the grid, it makes sense to keep them running, right? They are carbon free. And yes, they do produce nuclear waste. So, I mean, that is a potential challenge. And we're still, we humans are still figuring out what to do with nuclear waste. Mostly it's getting stored on site, which is, you know, not ideal. You want to have a, a centralized, secure, very stable ge geologic facility, right? Because this waste is radioactive, highly so for 10,000 years. I happen to know a lot about nuclear waste because I grew up in New Mexico and there's a facility mm. in southern New Mexico called WIP, which uh, is a long-term uh, nuclear waste dump, which has had some problems. Uh, they mm. had underground fires, for example. You know, that's one of the thing about these fissile materials is they're they can be, uh, they can tend to catch on fire. And then you have radioactive smoke. Uh, it's just not, it's not a happy situation. Um, mm. But, but anyway, the main issue is that these plants are not economical, you know, grid, grid power from nuclear might be 20 cents on a new nuclear power plant. You can get a big solar farm, you can get power for three, four cents. Mm. And, um, and so it's a game changer, right? And, and you don't see new, new nuclear facilities being built. There is one under construction in Georgia and it's been a complete boondoggle. It's gone way over budget and the, and the rate payers are paying for that. Right. And, um, and so solar, wind and storage are, are good for the, the rate payers, good for uh, creating jobs and saving people money. Um, so now the wind is at our back, so to speak in the solar industry and, and it's pretty happy days. Cool. So a couple of questions for you, Tim, with regards to the cost that you mentioned a couple of times here. Uh, maybe a two-part question. One is, um, what is the rough or approximate dollar per kW that a client might expect to see on a solar project? Maybe this differs based on, you know, kilowatts or megawatts. We'd love to hear that. And the second question is, we as an industry have seen the cost of solar drop quite significantly over the last five to seven years. Why is that? Is it because of, you know, the fact that there's more solar being installed and so that's dropping the cost or what do you, what do you attribute the cost to reduction to? Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, solar was over a hundred dollars a watt and now the technology is in the 30 cents a watt range. Now for an installed cost for for a residential here in the Midwest, we're around $3 a watt installed. That's $3 a watt DC installed. The average residential system in the Midwest is about 7KW. So it's like buying a car, it's 20 to $30,000. And the payback period varies by what you pay for power, what the net metering rules are, and what other incentives there are. We have another generous incentive going on in the US called the, the ITC, the investment tax credit, which is 26% very generous. And that's going to go up to 30% probably with a, I think like a 10 year extension that's in the works. We also have a storage incentive. Uh, uh, if you pair batteries with a solar array, you can use the ITC on the, on the battery. Um, hmm. And we should talk about batteries because we have some very generous incentives, new generous incentives, new cash incentives in Illinois for batteries, which are just eye popping. But so then the cost comes down, right? As you grow the scale of the project. So commercial industrial projects, we're talking, a small commercial project would be maybe 50 kW and then going up to several megawatts. In Illinois, we have a two megawatt AC limit for behind the meter. Um, and, you know, so I, I worked with some industrial facilities that could use 80 megawatts because they're, you know, running 24 seven, making whatever they make. Um, so, you know, the power usage of commercial facilities varies tremendously by what they're doing and the scale of the facility. But so we're doing those, those two megawatt projects. There's a lot of those now, right? And, and that's more in the $1.50 to $2 range per watt. And then as you get into utility, then it's more in the dollar to dollar 20 range all in. You're, and, you're, and you're seeing some in some markets, breaking that dollar barrier per watt now with uh, with large scale solar. Hmm. Amazing. And what are, as as the industry progresses, we talked about net metering, we talked about RPS. Uh, is the is is does solar have a role in 
either the the commodity market like a pure commodity energy arbitrage kind of thing and or what about you know are you seeing kind of bilateral contracts with like a developer and a large uh, energy user who's you know wanting to reduce their scope one or scope two emissions and I forgot to answer your other question about why the price has come down or, you know, the price of PV really has dropped significantly between 80 and 90% in the last 10 years. And that has to do with the cost adoption curve. Basically, as you double the adoption of a technology, you half the price. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, no, sorry, you drop the price by 25%. You double the adoption, you drop by 25%. And, and that and that leads to that very steep decline that you see with, you know, computer chips and right. cell phones and uh, cloud computing. And, and there's many, you know, many examples of this. And that is one of the differences that, you know, PV and batteries are technologies and they run on a fuel that happens to be, you know, billions of miles away in space, that fusion reactor in the sky called the sun. So those photons are free. You just need technology to capture them. And then they are intermittent. And that's why you need storage. You need batteries or some other way to store the energy so that you have 24-7 power. Um, so remind me, though, what was the other question? <laughs> I lost my... About how the, how the, yeah, no, uh, thanks for coming back on that. That, that production curve is, is important to understand. And then as, as you see the market mature, do we see those who are developing larger utility projects are they, you know, beyond the RPS in different states? Are they playing in a in a true kind of commodity market where they're dispatching into a, an ISO, or are we are you seeing a lot of uh, agreements between developers and and those who are trying to reduce their scope two emissions, like large energy consumers, via bilateral type agreement? Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a variety of ways that you know large-scale solar plays into the market, so to speak. We do see a lot of virtual PPAs with mm. large off-takers like Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc. All the Fortune 500 companies are now trying to decarbonize their energy footprint, and many have achieved, uh, you know, and now you see companies like Microsoft who's trying to retroactively decarbonize their footprint for the last 30 years. And so uh, that's just fascinating. And then, um, you know, you can, you can do what's called merchant power with these right. large facilities, right? Where they're, they're just putting the power out there on the market. It's a commodity market like any other commodity and, and companies are bidding on that, you know, and saying, okay, I need so many, megawatts of power for the next such and such period of time and those contracts are are short medium and long term and um and then you see you know these irps the these integrated resource planning projects that the utilities are doing and all of the major utilities in the united states now are adopting wind solar and storage in their five-year plans and you see companies like nipsco which is a big natural gas utility in Indiana and Pennsylvania and, and uh, up and down the, the Eastern seaboard. They're now doing massive wind, solar and battery projects. Excel Energy, which is uh, covers a large swath of the, uh, the Midwest, including Minnesota, but all the way over to Colorado. Uh, Alliant Energy up in Wisconsin is doing this. I mean, just, you know, here in Illinois, in part of our new energy legislation, we have something called the Coal to Solar, legislation which is incentivizing the conversion of old coal plants to solar and battery and um you know there's there's nine coal plants that are going to get sunsetted in the next five years and there's special incentives for the asset owner to to make that conversion um so yeah there's a there's a variety of ways but those those ppas are are one of the more common ones especially for the for uh medium scale utility and then we have what's called community solar, which is, uh, you know, you build a centralized three megawatt facility and then any off taker in the IOU territory. So here in Ameren territory, you can, as a resident or a commercial customer, you can subscribe to these community solar projects. We have 200 megawatts of those now. We're gonna get 
basically a, a rolling new 150 megawatts of those a year for the next 10 years um, with this new legislation that we just got this, uh, this September. And so it's a both and, right? We see a lot of residential, commercial, community and, uh, and utility. There are recs for utility scale, but they're not so important. They're lower value, they're much lower value. The, the real value is in the price of the power that they can sell that contract for to, to Facebook. And, um, and then we do see some projects that are like hybrids where like Facebook is building a data center up in uh, North Central Illinois. And they're gonna build a, a developer's gonna build a solar farm around that facility. It's like a hundred megawatt, maybe 200 megawatt uh, solar facility and, and feed the power into the, into the data center. So, you know, directly cleaning that data center grid power. Hmm. So um, with all, you know, with all this adoption of, of solar, with all this shutting down of coal, um, I'm looking out my window and it's a cloudy day here in Southern Niagara. Um, what's the, like, obviously we have storage as a, as a means, but commercially, like, are we, are we there yet in terms of storage, in terms of, talk to us about the storage piece. Uh, I think our listeners understand technically how it works, but the state of that industry as it's been built out and its commercial viability to provide firming to solar and, and, and wind as well. Yeah, storage is a game changer. And if you have high demand charges or high capacity charges, demand charges and capacity charges are cousins of one another. Um, in the Midwest, we, we attack capacity charges with batteries and then also provide resiliency or ride through which is a value stream, which is different for every customer. You know, it's it's great if you're doing, for example, um, plastic manufacturing, say injection molding. And mm -hmm. if you have brownouts or blackouts, then you have what's called uncontrolled shutdowns. And, and this is very costly for a manufacturer to have an uncontrolled shutdown. On the order of $50,000 uh, shutdown is, is one of our customers uh, was paying. Wow. And so they installed a, a two megawatt um four megawatt hour battery that gives them ride through in the event of a brownout mm -hmm. and and um and so you know you're you're not seeking true 24 7 operation with solar and storage generally you're just trying to offset critical loads and achieve some you know, financial benefit. You can also do grid services like frequency regulation with batteries. And in, in certain ISOs like PJM, you can monetize frequency regulation here. You know, our grid operates at, at uh, what is it? 60 Hertz and the battery conditions the power bringing it back into perfect frequency. And for that, the, the ISO will, will pay you, but that's only in certain ISOs. So mm. PJM is one of the more storage friendly ISOs. Cal, uh, KISO, the California ISO, is also quite friendly. New York ISO, they have special programs in New York and Massachusetts incentivizing storage. And we just got a new incentive here in Illinois. You know, before this, before this incentive, it was, it was maybe a, uh, a four or five year payback. But now we have a new cash incentive in Illinois. It's $250 per kWh of storage that you install. And what that does is it makes the payback on the battery like two years. Mm. Um, but when you combine the the ITC, the investment tax credit, and and this cash incentive, so it's it's a very good incentive. It's one of the better incentives nationally now in the U.S. I mean, California is really the 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 early adopting market, so to speak, and Hawaii. Um, and and the basic premise is okay. You've got sun during the day, and then you can store those excess electrons in a battery, so you can charge the battery from the solar or from the grid. <clears throat> and then when the sun goes down, you're using that battery to discharge and attack demands um, that are coming because the, the, there can be a peak load in the, in the early evening, like four to 6 p.m. 
um, that you can attack with that battery and, and, and make it pay back, so to speak. And then of course, for residents, you can also get, you can get resiliency. You know, we saw a grid outage, a major grid outage in Texas in February of this year. Mm. And many, many residents were without power for several days at a time. And it was very cold and that's just no fun, right? People are basically camping in their homes with no running water and no heat. When the grid goes down, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but even your thermal furnace stops working, right? Because it has an electric starter. Um, and if you don't have grid power, you don't have a furnace all of a sudden. So you can, you can now install a solar array and a battery. You have to install a big battery. You need like a 30 kWh uh, battery, okay? Uh, the, a power wall is a 13 kWh, you know, unit. So you need three power walls to have you know, some semblance of a normal life when the grid goes down and then you need a good size solar array and you need sunny weather. So you know, it's, not a, it's, it's not a complete magic bullet. And, um, but you see all these, uh, you know, all these generator companies like Generac is now in the battery business. They bought a manufacturer, mm. Shell bought Sonnen. So a lot of fossil companies are getting into the battery storage. And, and again, that's that cost adoption curve. Batteries are still expensive, right? Um, and, and prohibitive for many consumers and, and many commercial um, customers. But once you really start to look at the numbers with these incentives, it does pencil. It's just a question of, can you make that investment? Can you finance it? And, and do you trust your installer or your EPC to run the numbers in, in some semblance of a legitimate manner? And, and it's good, bad, ugly there, right? So like, I, I came from Continental Energy Solutions. We were doing a lot of solar and storage and we partnered with a company called Intelligent Generation, which is just an amazing software as a service company that really has figured out the PJM storage market mm -hmm. and they know how to run those cash flows. So, so it's, a, it's very much a team sport. <laughs> and, and Tim, you mentioned, like you've been talking a lot about the integration between solar and energy storage. Does Foster Solar provide the the energy storage or the battery as well or are you just limiting yourself sort of to the pv side and then do you do those projects on an epc basis do you provide ppas like how does that work for you guys yeah so we are a solar and storage installer and installing storage is is quite a bit easier than other technologies you know it, it arrives in a conditioned container right and and there's a lot of electronics it's when you see these large battery facilities, they they look very much like uh, server farms, and and there's humming fans, and they have to be, you know, you need temperature regulation in the facility, right? Because batteries don't like to be too hot and they don't like to be too cold, and and so then you're just doing that uh, that pipe and wire work, right? Putting it on a foundation. And, and plugging it into whatever you're plugging it into, whether that's the grid or a commercial facility. And uh, so, yeah, solar and storage is a great thing. And we see utilities. I mean, just one utility that, I, that I'm starting to work with called Vistra, which is out of Texas, they're shuttering 7.6 gigawatts of coal plants in, by 2026. And many of those facilities will get uh, some kind of a renewable energy facility around the plant there's great infrastructure there right there's a great right. uh, great big substation there's power lines for transmitting that power to wherever the the off takers are and yeah the the coal plant is no longer economically viable but you can make plenty re reuse so to speak of that infrastructure and that's and that's definitely a growing trend and you see stories if you just google coal to solar you'll see this is a phenomenon um, you know, I grew up in New Mexico and there's a there's a ginormous coal plant in the Four Corners area where where Colorado, New Mexico, mm. Utah and Arizona meet. And that um, those facilities have now been sunsetted and they're being replaced with solar and batteries. And that's just great for uh, the Native American communities around there. Right. Reducing the air pollution, creating jobs. And it's and it's clean, uh, cleaning the grid for future generations. When I was a co-op student, I worked at what was at the time North America's largest coal plant uh, here in Nanakoke, Nanakoke, Ontario, on on the north shore of Lake Erie. It was fourth. It was eight 500 megawatt machines. It was it was wow. four thousand megawatts. Yeah. And and they that that is the story of that facility. That it is totally gone. Uh, you can watch the videos of the the stacks coming down on the internet. And there's a 
I mean, it's, it's obviously not 4,000 megawatts, but there is a solar array there that has used the interconnect capacity and, you know, used that, you know, reclaimed, um, you know, the because the, you're not going to do anything else with that. You're not going to grow crops, you know, probably there because you got, you know, you've been storing coal there for so many years and things of that nature. So, yeah, we have some of those stories here as well. So, uh, so cool. Tim, if I was a, a CNI customer, um, how would you, how would Fossil Solar go about developing an opportunity? Can you kind of lead us through the steps that you guys would suggest to mitigate risk and, you know, make sure that the, that the client is, is executing the project properly? Yeah, you first and foremost, you look at the power bills, right? You need uh, to analyze the bill. You're looking at the KWH usage, but also the other, uh, the other charges. I use a tool called Energy Toolbase. To, to analyze the, the bill. And then you're doing a d design, whether that's on the roof or the ground, you have to work around things like, well, what is the roof condition? You need a roof that's 10 years old or less. That can be a major challenge. Sometimes they have to re-roof before, if they wanna do rooftop solar and if they have ground next to the facility, which many manufacturing plants do, then you can do a ground mount. And then you're dialing in, okay, so what, what type of facility are we recommending? How much of the load could you offset? You can technically offset 100% of the load if you have enough roof or ground, right? And and then you run into sometimes those limits of, oh, well, in, in, like in Illinois, we have a limit of two megawatt AC for behind the meter. Once you go above two megawatts, it's considered a QF or a qualifying facility, which is just a power plant, right? If you want to go out in a cornfield and prop up a coal plant or a natural gas power plant, you're building a QF. And, and solar qualifies as a QF at, at larger scale. But um, so, and then, and then you have to run a cash flow, right? Where you're, you've got your cost of, of your, you know, your CapEx, and then how is that paying back? You've got, there's, there's basically four or five ways that the solar is paying back. Of course, it's energy from the sun. So those, you know, that, you're offsetting the power bill directly with KWH from the PV. Then you're using the tax incentives. There's special depreciation for solar equipment. Um, it's called bonus depreciation. And then there's uh, cash incentives. We have two specific cash incentives in Illinois. One is Rex, and one is the smart inverter rebate. So the Rex are about 30 to 50% of the project's value coming back to the owner in the first five years. So that's helping to get the project cash positive in those first five years. And then there's an incentive called the smart inverter rebate, which is basically incentivizing UL 1741 certified inverter technology to be utilized. What these inverters do is it gives the grid operator a semblance of remote control over the inverter. And so if they wanted to throttle a solar array in the middle of a sunny day in a certain geography, if they have too much power coming onto the grid, they could actually control these uh, facilities and throttle them back. Um, the customers don't want that necessarily, right? Because they're benefiting from the KWH that the PV is creating. But you know we have very low penetration here in Illinois, so it's really not a concern. Um, so yeah, so then it's just a question of, you know, money out and money, money in. And, and so you're getting your, your CapEx back in the first five years and right. then the rest is gravy, right? Then you have 20 more years of a facility, 20, to 30 more years of lifetime in the facility. And that basically equates to, uh, so you, let's just say you put a million dollars in on the front end, you're cash neutral then in your four or five. And then you'll get about a million dollars in savings from the power mm. that the facility produces over the next 20 years. That's kind of how these deals pencil out. And, um, you know, so it's, it's significant savings. I mean, a large industrial facility could save $250,000 a year off their power bill with a solar array. And so that is money that you could then, in, you know, invest in R&D or mm. Expanding in you know your facilities or doing hiring or whatever you want to use money for, right? It is a way to free up capital um, in in certain geographies. You have to know your geography. You have to know those incentives in your geography, and it is every geography is different. And and do you recommend that you know assuming that the it looks like the uh, the project is going to pencil that a client 
engages with either an engineering firm or with an EPC to do some form of what we refer to as front-end engineering design. So to check things like, uh, you mentioned the 10-year roof, right? But from a structural perspective, can the weight of the solar PV panels, you know, can that roof withstand that? Or if it's ground-mounted, should they be doing a geotech? Should, be, should they be speaking with their local utility to see if they can net meter or run in parallel or connect with the grid? Like those types of things. Is that recommended from, from your perspective? Yeah, of course, as, as projects mature, then engineering comes into play. Uh, for rooftop, you have, to, you have to do a mechanical analysis. Can the roof hold the additional weight of the PV, which is about uh, two to six pounds per square foot. Mm -hmm. Many facilities surprisingly are designed to only hold the snow load, which is about 20 pounds per square foot here in Illinois. Um, but I've never had a project that got stopped by the mechanical. So you can lighten the load by doing what we call mechanically attaching the array. So most rooftop solar is ballasted. You use these concrete blocks to weigh down the racking that keeps the array on the roof. It's not, a, it's not mechanically attached, but you can do mechanical attachments. And that's more common in California because of, of uh, earthquake risk. Mm, and, exactly. and so you can do a fully attached system, which, which then you have no ballast. Uh, or very little ballast, and then it's lighter, and you're just bolting basically the the racking to the roof. Um, for ground mount, then of course the ge ge geotech is a factor. Uh, you know, how are you going to mount the array? Are you going to use a driven pile or a screw, a ground screw? Those are the two options basically, and it just depends on the soils. You know, here in Illinois we do a lot of driven pile. In the Northeast, you do a lot of ground screws because it's much rockier and you have shallow bedrock and those kinds of things. Um, but there are surprises and, and, and then there's, you know, the consideration of, of uh, stormwater, um, you know, on larger facilities, you have to look at, you know, endangered species and, and other types of environmental resources that might be impacted by the development. And every jurisdiction is slightly different. And that's, that's why solar development is a specialty. Uh, not anybody can be a, a successful solar developer, you really have to become quite sophisticated about all the nuances and, and all the different jurisdictions. And, and, and it tends to be a fairly localized, like developers tend to work in certain geographies, not all geographies. And we're always partnering with developers and that is, and then, and then also engineering firms. It's a, it's a tripartite really. You need EPCs, and some EPCs have a lot of engineering capability, but it's more on the electrical engineering side generally with EPCs in the solar industry. And then they're outsourcing the civil and environmental engineering mm -hmm. or structural. So what, uh, you know, with as we move towards the 20 gigawatts a year and, you know, cost parity and, you know, all this adoption, I mean, what, what are, it's it, everything seems like it's turning up roses. What what are some of the barriers, Tim? I mean, what's what's you know what if you could move, remove one or two barriers from from the industry, what would it be? Yeah, it's very interesting how customers react to solar in the CNI space. Even though you know you and I are very excited about a four to six year payback period on a on a power plant project, customers are are not. You know, it's not an easy sell. It's right. this is very new for them, unless they already are working. You know, if if it's a larger customer that has facilities in multiple markets, and maybe they've solarized one of their facilities in, say, California or Florida, <laughs> or or Germany, um, and even then, um, you know, I've had customers like that who are hesitant about doing a, a project in in Illinois, and you know, so that capex is is it is an outlay. And yes, you can finance it, and there and there's a and you can do third-party ownership, and that's and that's a, a way to uh, de-risk and accelerate projects. We see a lot of power purchase agreements on um, with, for example, big box stores like Walmart is doing a lot of PPAs, mm. and I happen to know a developer that's done a lot of WalMarts, and we were installing those projects both at Continental and Fossler was involved in in the Walmart wave, so to speak, that hit Illinois. And there's many more stores that will get solarized over the coming years uh, here in, in Illinois. Um, and then, you know, the, the incentives, of course, they, they ebb and flow. And we, right. had a, 
we had a bust here in Illinois. The CNI market came to a complete standstill because the rec money's dried up. Mm. It's a good program, but it's not a perfect program. The fact that you pay out 15 years of recs over five years in, in the first wave of, of FIJA was flawed because the, 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 the pot of money dried up. So now we're about to launch block five and we've, we've accelerated the, you know, the pot. So there's more money flowing into the pot of money and then they're slowing down the rate of the outflow slightly. So I think it's a uh, seven year payback. You know, they're paying out 15 years of recs over seven years, something like that. Um, and then the ITC, you know, it's been stepping down. It was 30%, then it stepped down to 26. It's scheduled to go to 22, I think in 2023, but now the Biden administration is looking at bringing it back to 30 and extending that for 10 years, or yeah, I think it's at least 10 years. So those things are barriers to entry if, the, if those incentives you know, fall back. And what people have to understand is governments subsidize all forms of energy and transportation for that matter, right? Like we built the, the highway system in North America with federal dollars which is just your and my money that goes into, you know, we pay taxes and then the government does stuff with that, providing infrastructure. Power is so important, right, for the economy. You can imagine if you don't have electricity, you don't have a vibrant economy, right? And, that, and, and, and rural electrification was a big thing right after World War II. You know, we've only had, a, a, you know, a totally electrified economy you know, starting in the 1940s. And, and it's, it's hard to believe for, for people like us, but it was the thing. My dad helped his father electrify his, his cloth printing factory in Georgia when my dad was a young man in his 20s. Mm. Um, and that's just like bizarre to me, right? I, I just cannot imagine running a commercial industrial facility without electricity, but it was done. Right, right. Wow. Cool. Well, as we uh, as we come uh, near the end of our time, I, I want to pivot a little bit and and talk. So we, we talked a lot about your your kind of day job and and but you also um, do some podcasting. So talk talk to us, uh, Tim, about about your podcast and where people can find it and what you focus on. I know people who listen to podcasts are always looking for other good podcasts and uh, want to introduce them to yours. Yeah, the podcasting world is really exploding. I've been doing a little research project and documenting all the sustainable and energy-related podcasts. There's over 200 uh, sustainability-related podcasts now. I started, my first podcast was the Solar Podcast. I started it as a way to educate customers about solar. How does it pay back? What is it involved? What is the technology? How do you finance it? And then I discovered bringing guests on my show was a great way to have an interesting conversation, create educational content, but do less work on my part. I was giving slide decks before that, you know, <laughs> you know on, on this, is a, this is a cash flow commercial industrial, but um, I really enjoy interviewing folks. And, and now, you know, I, I bring on solar developers, I bring on manufacturers. You know, we, we had Meyer Berger on the show, me and John, I have a co-host now on, on my mm. second show is called the Clean Power Hour. And that's that's the show that is now running. You can find it at cleanpowerhour.com. I have a co-host, John Weaver, who's a journalist for PV Magazine. So he's really a techie. He's also a solar installer in Massachusetts. So he's working in one of the better markets. He does commercial, industrial, and residential solar. So together, he and I cover the entire swath of the solar industry with real boots on the ground knowledge of how the industry works. And then of course, he's always writing stories about emerging technologies and uh, and I'm a techie at heart. Uh, you know, I, I just love technology. It is, uh, in so many ways, the lifeblood of our economy. And I love, you know, having conversations with entrepreneurs at, at all levels, uh, you know, founders and, and CEOs, but also director level executives are a wonderful way to learn about the industry, what's going on with solar panel manufacturing or the WRO. So I had uh, Clean Energy Associates on the show. They're a global engineering and consulting firm that does a lot of work in Asia. Um, they're tracing, for example, uh, solar panel manufacturing from soup to nuts. Where do those cells come from? Where did where was the ingot manufactured? Because now we have 
this um, withhold and release order that the United States has issued where we're saying to Shenzhen, China, okay, we don't want product that was potentially made with forced labor. Um, and, and so you need, uh, you need partners like CEA to help you figure out, am I working with good product or bad product or what's, what's my risk um, on, this, you know, on this product, so to speak. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, podcasting is, is a big part of my, um, um, my career, so to speak, in the industry. I mean, I'm just producing one, one show a week now, so it's, it's a small amount of time that I put into it. But it's a great way to network. That's really the the greatest value that I perceive from it is just expanding my network. I've got to have folks like Jigger Shaw on the show who oh, wow. you know, he founded Sun Edison, which invented the solar PPA in North America. And uh, he grew up in a little town in in Western Illinois called Sterling, Illinois. And now, of course, he's the uh, the head of the loan program at the DOE. He's also a venture capitalist. So he's just a very influential person in the industry. And I just wouldn't have had a cause to have a conversation with Jigger if it weren't for my podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look forward to uh, bringing you, if you're listening to this and you're, and you want to tell your story, I would love to have you on my show. I, I love talking about solar wind and battery and other energy storage technologies. Cool. And so how, how, what's the best way you said, uh, you said cleanpowerhour.com? Yeah, just cleanpowerhour.com. Okay, and then is where you can find all the uh, content, both a, a link to the YouTube channel and the audio platforms. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, you know, just uh, Google Tim Montague uh, and, and you'll see my LinkedIn profile or, or reach out to me on Twitter, TG Montague. Very cool. Well, Tim, it's been uh, been a real pleasure. We've spent uh, two two good good hours together. One uh, one hour on your show, and then we quickly hustled to the next studio, and now we're now we're on our show, and and it's been fun. Got some good laughs. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, hopefully, Absolutely. we've uh, brought brought great value to all the listeners. So, um, Tim, thanks again for joining us on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt and Lisa. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And uh, on behalf of uh, Lisa and Mark and myself, we want to thank Tim uh, for his contributions today and all of his uh, expertise and wisdom that he brought to us. And um, want to wish you, uh, the listeners, a good week. Uh, we, uh, we ask that you uh, stay safe and have fun. Take care, everybody. <laughs>